Welcome everybody to the Industry 4.0 Community live stream for Tuesday, March 22nd in podcast form. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, I mean, that's the truth, actually. But Zach and I were joking. Hey, it's uh, oh, wow. your host, Walker D. Reynolds and Zachary Scriven, our community outreach administrator. And, Welcome, uh, everybody. Let us know where you're joining from today. Good to see you. Lee, Amy, Carrie. David Hellyer, Josh, Cheryl. Got actually a couple of interest, uh, exciting announcements for you guys today. Well, all right, or no, did we talk about it last week? I think we mentioned we, it last week. We did not talk about it last week. Last week, I, I was, we last week was in the mastermind. That's what we right. did. Huh? Last week was Michael Rada, and I was not on the podcast last week or the live QA. Um, <clears throat> and two weeks ago, I didn't have permission to make the announcement. So we got a pretty cool announcement about somebody who's joined the organization. Um, we got a great show today, so we're really going to um, we're going to really be covering two topics today in the Q and A. Um, we're going to be going over five example use cases for the unified namespace. Um, I had a community member reach out to me and say, "Hey, you know, can you give me some use cases of organizations that are using a unified namespace architecture for their um, Industry 4.0 implementation?" Um, and so I'm going to give you those use cases. Obviously, I got to leave the client names out, but I'll, I'll give you the verticals and use case examples. And then today we're going to be talking about, um, we'll be responding to a question, a couple of questions that have come in surrounded around MES. You guys, if you look in some of our previous videos, I've, you know, said, hey, listen, you know, any idiot can build an a, a SCADA system, but, you know, building an MES system is a lot more difficult. And obviously I, I say that obtusely, to get a response, you know, to, to get people's attention, honestly, that's the reason I do it. I'll say any idiot can build a SCADA system, but, you know, building MES is a whole different ball of wax. And the reason I do that is primarily for the end users, the the plant managers, the the operations managers, the, um, the directors of engineering who are getting ready to go out and spec uh, a, a digital manufacturing execution system. And really the message needs to be, hey, listen, you know, you need to approach developing a digital MES completely different than the way that you go out and you source or spec uh, a SCADA system. You're not, you're going to use completely different vendors. You're not, um, you're going to use different solutions. You're going to take different approaches. And so I'm going to answer some of those questions today. Uh, basically the fundamental difference between SCADA and MES from a functional and integration perspective. So, but before that, uh, we're going to get, wait, started. wait, you're not, you're not supposed to be sharing your screen Walker. I'm not sharing my screen. Zach. Oh. Okay, good. I was just I, I was just checking. Yeah, I'm not sharing my screen. Uh, the reason we're not sharing my screen is because um, through the community advisory board, the recommendation came in that we should treat the live Q and A either we should treat it as a podcast or not a podcast. I think so, it's good. I think it's good feedback. Yeah. So we're going to treat it as a podcast. If we ever do share our screen, uh, it the sharing the screen will not be. Um, fundamental to getting value out of. We'll this. say what's on the screen. Like today, we got some industry news for you. We got like some some of Elon's tweets. Yep. Um, in the industry news. So, um, does anybody have any questions before we get started? Anybody in the chat have any anything they want us to answer real quick before we get started? So I'm actually going to tell a story while I'm waiting. So on the way into the office this morning, um, you guys may have noticed that in the YouTube channel we started a new. Um, a new series called Industry 4.0 Talks, which is basically, um, you know, we set up a camera while I'm driving into the office and and I'll answer a question or talk about something that may have caught, come up in a meeting that day or, you know, it's just sort of a, um, a stream of consciousness type video where we're talking about some subject in Industry 4.0. And uh, on the way in this morning, um, I shot a video that you should be looking out for called um, Digital Strategy is the Starting Point. Um, I want to talk a little bit about where that came from before I get started today. So um, I do a lot of consulting. So in addition to being, you know, I'm obviously an entrepreneur and own companies and stuff, but that's not really my claim to fame. My claim to fame is as an industry 4.0 architect, that's really my, my you know, my, um, my value to the automation market. So, but I do a lot of consulting and by consulting, I mean, there's basically three types of consulting that I get hired to do. Um, 
So the first thing I get hired to do is buy OEMs. OEMs will um, bring me in to evaluate their products or to um, consult before they build a product. Um, and how to, you know, how to, how can they develop their products to provide maximum value for um, industry 4.0 implementations, right? Number two, I get hired by um, end users very often. I get hired as an end user to buy end users to uh, peer review other integrators' proposals, um, other consultants' um, um, reports. Uh, that happens quite a bit. So like, um, you know, clients will hire us to review um, roadmaps that are, uh, that are, have been um, submitted by really large IT consulting firms. And I, you know, they'll, it'll be a 200 page document and they'll ask me to peer review it and basically critique it. So kind of go through and say, here are the things that are missing. Here are the things that are right. Here are the questions they didn't ask that they should have asked. Um, so I get, I get hired to do that quite a bit, actually a, a, a lot in the last couple of years, um, probably in maybe 40 different times I've been hired to review other companies' um, roadmaps and stuff. And then the last thing I get um, hired to do consulting-wise is by venture capital firms. So VC groups, If you, I don't know if you guys know how this works, but basically a venture capital group may be considering investing in a product. Okay. Uh, how, or, how is that even legal with how much information and knowledge you have of the industry? Like it, like a VC firm that hires you is going to gain so much information from that meeting that it just doesn't even seem like it should be legal. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny. Um, I mean, it's, a, it's I'm expensive. just being transparent. I'm just being transparent. I mean, it's expensive. I mean, I charge $1,200 an hour for my, my consulting rate is 1200 an hour. And um, you know, it's definitely worth it. And the reason it's twelve hundred an hour is just so I don't have to do it that much. I mean, the, that's the if I've <laughs> been doing rate, a lot, a lot though lately, though. Yeah, I mean that's the crazy thing, you know. But so, for example, I, I to answer your question, there was a this venture capital group. Um, so the way that they do it is, let's say I'm a VC group and I want to invest in some product. Okay, what they're going to do is they're going to do a market analysis. And the way they're going to do that market analysis, they're going to do traditional methods where they're going to hire a, a team to do a market analysis, right? You know, where what, what is the, the demand out in the market for said product, right? But then what they're going to do is they're going to hire a, they hire a, a company that goes and looks for subject matter experts in those fields. And then they arrange a meeting, like basically a meeting where I don't know who the venture capital group is and the venture capital group does, they don't have my contact information. I don't have their contact information. What happens is we get the VC group hires this company that then finds me. And then that company is the one who's hiring me to have uh, the conversation. So they're hiring like a, a advisory firm who's then is bringing you in as the industry expert. Correct. And so then I, that makes uh, sense. you know, so then basically they set up a call and I'm on that call and then there will basically be a big team from that VC group that just peppers me with questions. Right. And, and I do this quite a bit, actually, a lot more than I ever thought I would, you know, and, uh, and sometimes I'm blown away that people are willing to pay what they pay to just have me talk to them for an hour. But the, um, well, imagine what they're charging though. You know? Yeah. And, and, um, you know, one of the one of the things that I've been consulting on lately a lot, I've actually had three separate um, three separate calls um, with the same venture capital group in the last month. So normally I only end up having one call and they'll basically ask me all sorts of questions like, you know, this this latest engagement. They were just asking me a lot about, um, you know, regional architectures, uh, capabilities. And this is all centered around MES. You know, so regional architectures, they're asking a lot about data centers globally. What are some of the risk factors, the uh, data management, compliance, regulatory requirements for data when you're doing global implementations, that kind of stuff. And, you know, it was pretty for MES. Yeah. For, well, I mean, the those questions would have applied to basically any software as a service style mm -hmm. implementation. But th this Using was like specifically... AWS or something. Yeah, AWS, Azure, right? So, and, and you know, there were actually questions about, you know, when, when should we use an AWS data center? When should we use a Microsoft data center? That kind of stuff. Um, but my, my point is one of the things that I get hired a, a lot to do is to do those types of things. Consult with companies who are thinking about doing acquisitions of other companies or, in this case, developing their own 
MES system from the, the ground up and wh- what things do they need to consider? E- even right down to pricing points, you know, based on this region, you know, how much are, how much the, the average, you know, manufacturer pay per asset for their MES system? That's a really common question, right? So I'll actually answer that one. Um, if like if you're doing monthly, isn't it like a couple hundred bucks a month per machine? No, I would say, to, I would say per, perpetual, it should be about $250 a, a month per asset. So, you, you know, say I'm, say I'm buying my MES system and, and I'm going to, I'm going to pay perpetual and then 18% a year for the service agreement. I, you should expect to pay about $250, um, $250 a month per or $250 per year per asset. That's what oh, you should per pay. year. Okay. Per year per asset. Right. So oh, okay. that, you know, and, um, and then if you're doing SAS, it should be about, you know, in general, one, about one eighth. Generally in SAS is generally one eighth of whatever the perpetual. We did get a is. couple of comments that came in or actually one, uh, which Richard Shaw already said, answered, but I'll uh, first, thank you for the efforts. I am a recently graduated industrial engineer. And my question is what skills should I develop or courses uh, can I take as I am very interested in industry 4.0? Thank you. Hey, that's a, yeah, that's a great question, Hamza. So here, here's your answer. So um, what I would recommend you do is go to iiot.university, which is, it's a university that we manage, um, you know, um, you know, 4.0 solution manages. Um, so it's, it's our products on it. There. there is a free IIoT mini course on there. So go ahead and sign up at iiot.university and take the free IIoT mini course. It takes about somewhere between two and eight hours, give or take to get through all that yeah. content. It's the foundational content for industry 4.0. From there, you, know, you want to join the Industry 4.0 Discord server. There's a, a wealth of knowledge in there. 4,000 people, give or take, are in there um, that are all Industry 4.0 professionals. You know, many, many people just like you straight out of college are looking for, you know, guidance on their Industry 4.0 career. Uh, additionally, we have a program called Mentorship, the Mentorship Program. And in that program, there, uh, I, if, I, if you, anybody who's a member of the program, if you go in there, I think in module one, uh, in module one of the mentorship program, there is a like one and a half hour session we went in through called architecting your industry 4.0 career. And it basically talks about all the prerequisites, the things that you should do, um, the things that you should do, the skill sets that you're going to learn. And part of what we talk about in that architecting your industry 4.0 career is even if you don't do it with us, even if you don't do it through our mentorship program, do it, you know, these are the skills you're going to need to learn, okay? And you're going to want to do them in this order, right? There is an entire curriculum that we have created that really is designed to digitally transform the, in the, the, the controls engineer or the business intelligence developer into an industry 4.0 professional. And it starts with that foundation, right? Which is the IOT mini course. Then it moves into mentorship, which is all the technical skills. And then it moves into mastermind, which is teaching you how to lead those initiatives. But to answer your question, where should you get started? Just go to iiot.university, sign up for the free mini course. You just, you know, you create an account, take that mini course, join the industry 4.0 discord server, get yourself introduced to people, people in the community. And, and then they can help steer you in, in the right direction based on your the value that you're looking to get out of the community. Go ahead, Zach. Well, I was actually going to say um, the, I, the free IIoT mini course is actually, it's, it's actually the, uh, one of the modules of the non-technical training from mentorship. Like, so you get one of the, you know, there's five core non-technical training modules that you get as part of the mentorship program. One of those is the IOT mini course that you can just get alone for free. It's, you know, it's, it's a, some of our YouTube videos. It's, it's kind of compiled in a training video with seven videos in a row and you get a free certificate. So, and- so here's sort of the curriculum for the mentorship. This is sort of the order it goes into. So there's a welcome to the mentorship program, which contains the welcome. There was an initial orientation call. And then we had architecting your industry 4.0 career. And then we had a skills, we have a skills assessment as a part of that. Okay. The, then the core training, which is the non-technical training. So when we do 
enterprise. So and, and if anybody's doing this, like if, if you're a professional out there who wants to do training courses for your customers, your clients, your man- manufacturers, or you work at a manufacturer and you, and the first thing you're questioning is, well, how do we even get our organization started? The answer is, is the first thing you gotta do is get them aligned on what industry 4.0 is. So part of mentorship is there is a core non-technical uh, module. That's the, at the very beginning, it's after the introduction, it's after you, you know, architecting your career, there's a core section and that's module one. There are six videos in module one. So what is manufacturing an example of a manufacturer? What is industry 3.0 is industry 4.0 industry 3.0 versus industry 4.0. And then what is digital transformation? And then module two is when you move into the technical training. Okay. So the technical training is all about, you know, the automation stack, what is IOT? It starts getting into the technical details. Module three is when we start getting into software development lifecycle, et cetera, et cetera. Module four is data ops. Module five is when we get into IIoT, engineering, maintenance, and quality. We start talking about CMMS, quality systems. Um, and then we get into the step one training, which is the actual technical training, which in this case is uh, um, ignition, basic ignition training, basic Python, basic SQL, um, and then basic Java swing UI development and um, reactive development. So both mobile and static. But to answer your question, that's really where you should head. And then, you know, whether or not you go into mentorship is is entirely up to you. But the outline of what you should do to architect your career is the same no matter who you get it from. Okay. Great question. Ariel um, said he got lost from daylight savings time. Um, also, Nara said, uh, hello, guys. Just uh, ran into the channel. Watched most, watched most of the videos over the weekend on binge watch mode. Thanks for the passion and sharing the knowledge. Thank you, Naras. Naras, thank you, brother. Uh, Orlando, good question. When is it a good idea to get SEPASoft MES at the beginning or once the process and SCADA is set up? All right. Great question. Uh, all right. Very good question. So let me start by saying this. Um, version, first off, when I'm going to be talking about SEPASoft, so for those of you who don't know what SEPASoft is, uh, it, it, the Ignition platform is owned by a company called Inductive Automation. Inductive Automation is owned by a guy named Steve Heckman. Steve Heckman used to own a systems integrator in Northern California, sort of, you know, hired a couple of guys out of UC Davis. They developed this platform called Factory PMI. It kind of blew up. It took out. They originally developed it just for their customers. It kind of blew up a couple of years later. Once they realized, hey, this could be a viable product, he created, they made it Ignition in like 2008. And um, at that exact same, around that same time, Steve Heckman's brother, Tom Heckman, kind of got into the mix and he created SEPASoft, which was to do MES modules for the Ignition platform. Okay. Um, that initial, the initial, initial. Was it, MES, always a, was it always a separate company? Well, it wasn't, but Tom, Tom was always in charge of it. So initially SEPASoft was sort of a subset of ignition. It was a strategic module, third party module partner. Right. But then eventually there were some, you know, issues like quality issues with the Sepsoft modules. And I, I suspect, I don't know this for sure, but I suspect what it was, was inductive automation didn't, you know, they've kind of felt like the Sepsoft modules were giving them a black eye sometimes. So mm. they, they, they had them break off. So it was right around the time Sirius also became like a strategic third party. Like, Sepasoft used to just be able to get it right on Inductive Automation's website, and it was just very much like, yeah, like a sister brand. Sepasoft you know? used to operate right inside of Inductive Automation. They don't do that. That doesn't happen. Oh, no way. So oh, then yeah, Sepasoft the, yeah, broke out. Um, they became a separate company that develops MES modules, and they created um, OEE version 2. So they had OEE version 1. They created OEE version 2, which was a great improvement on the version 1 modules. We actually have done a lot of projects in version 1. You could build some really great systems in version one, but you really needed to know the pitfalls to avoid. And in fact, aren't they on version three now? Um, well, sort of. <laughs> I mean, it's still the, the, the V2. It, it's still the V2 core, though. The uh, so the way that you know the the underlying master data model that they built for version two is still still in place. So here's the answer to your question when it comes to Sepasoft, um when you should use Sepasoft MES. Um, we don't, when you're you're reverse engineering. (laughs) Yeah. We, we, we don't use Sepasoft's modules anymore. Um, we, we haven't, we haven't, uh, we haven't used Sepasoft's MES modules in about 
four years, I mean, literally like after V2 came out, there was a, you know, we, we just, what ended up happening was we developed our own MES system in ignition called MES 4.0. What actually wasn't in ignition, it was separate and ignition sits on top of it. Factory studio steps on top of it. Right. It, and, and our recommendation to most people based on most use cases is you are better off building your MES solution than using an off-the-shelf MES module. If, now, there, even there, if that means you have to maintain the code base and you're sort of becoming like software developer. Right. Exactly. Here's the point. For any off-the-shelf MES solution, we're gonna we have a new series coming out all about MES. Okay. In in mentorship and mastermind, we're actually gonna be doing this this training. Um that's a big piece of mentorship for this year is is talking about the MES functionality, how to build an MES system from scratch. Whether you buy something off the shelf or not, whether you're using Cepasauce modules or not, you're going to write a ton of code. You're right. going to. You're going right. to write a ton of code, it's pri primarily on the business connector side. So, and, and we'll get into this. You know, MES is not like building SCADA. It's completely different. We're going to talk about it today. Why is it different? I'm going to answer these questions. Why is it so drastic? And I'm going to use exact, you know, use cases. Go ahead, Zach. No, you made me think of a call I was on earlier and <clears throat> this client was having like trouble running into the ERP uh, connection with SAP. And I was like, yeah, you know, like actually that's literally what we talk about in all of module two of mastermind integrating ERP. You know, SAP is one of the biggest generalist ERP mm -hmm. systems. And then I was like, you know, I think in this case we would recommend Walker would say leverage the business connector module from Cepasoft, the one that was developed like by four, was it four IR or no, uh, yeah, no. I, I four R or whatever four, four IR, four IR something. He's a, he's a former uh, SAP guy. They, um, yeah, but, exactly. You would recommend using that module to connect to SAP for that client? Yeah, I absolutely would. So here, here are my favorite modules from Cepasoft. So number one, the business connector module, and then the SAP business connector. Those are the two most okay. value. There's in my two, opinion, there's two different ones. Yeah, two different. They have the okay. business connector, which is sort of a generic connector that allows you to map. Um, think you know you can Mac B two ML map or XML or into a, a tag namespace and ignition. Um, that's dope as shit. And then SAP is all about being able to. Um, unpack a BAPI from SAP and you can map it into your Can you essentially namespace. put the, and does it the, map the whole SAP namespace into the unified namespace? You, yeah, there's any, anything that, anything that the BAPI exposes to uh, you. So anything that the business API exposes to you, yeah. you can map into ignition tags and the other, and why, you would, also, why would you not want that though? Why would you not want that? There's no, SAP. I, I couldn't imagine a scenario where you wouldn't. Okay. Uh, yeah, number that, two, because that's what I recommended. That's what I said to that client. Yeah, there's a web development module that Cepasoft also makes. So Ignition makes a module called Web Dev, which is a really stripped down Web Dev module that allows you to, you know, do post and get from APIs. But um, Cepasoft makes a much more a, a, a more robust Web Dev module that allows you to, um, you know, con consume SOAP calls, decipher SOAP calls, and REST. I really love that module as well as too. I want to answer Orlando's question, but though, let's say, let's assume we're going to go ahead and use the Cepasoft MES modules. Um, like when's the, the best OE, time? To, OE downtime. Yeah. When is the best time to get them at the beginning or, or once the process and skate is set up, the answer is at the beginning. And here's, I'm actually going to answer your question in more detail, Orlando here in the end. One of the questions you're going is to define all the assets. Yeah. You're, you're there. And not only that, there are, there are, there are um, attributes that you are going to want to have exist in the process and at the SCADA layer that you would that you really need to have the Cepasoft modules in hand so that you can define those attributes before you implement them in the process and in the in supervised control data acquisition. Okay, we had another uh, couple more questions. Come uh, hold on, I want to answer Kirthana. Yeah, that's what I was saying. How much time do you take on site approximately when you're setting up a broker for the first time in a plant? That's a great question. And ironically, we rarely go to the site to do this. So here's sort of how we implement. Okay. Um, let's say we're going to set up a broker in a facility. We use a Tossy Box VPN. Um, they're behind me. Um, you guys can, Zach will put the link for Tossy Box in the chat. Uh, we use the Tossy Box Industrial VPN. They're, in our opinion, they're the, they're the best VPN, uh, industrial VPN on the market. 
in terms of just capability throughput, but also just ease of use. We will set up the VPN here in our office and then we ship it to our client. And it's really basic, really simple. Plug the plug the LAN onto the process network side, wherever our broker server is going to be and plug the WAN and give it internet access and we'll be on the network. It's that simple. Um, and then we will set up the broker remotely. Generally, we're spending 90 minutes start to finish doing uh, broker installation, configuration and security setup. Good question though. Are you using like um, like a like a generic mosquito broker to start out with, or are you recommending like someone start out with like a enterprise Hive MQ or EMQX uh, enterprise broker? Depends on what we're doing. So let's say we're doing a localized proof of concept, then we're almost certainly going to use mosquito just because why not? It's easy and and we know we're going to scale up at some point what anyway. Do you, what do you run it on? Uh, generally, run on a Raspberry Pi. You know, we'll we'll run Mosquito on a Raspberry Pi. Okay. Say All it's right. a, lo a localized POC. Should run it on the Easy VPN uh, uh, IOX one hardware. Assuming assume I have assuming it's there, then. But the other thing is, I'll run the broker on an Opto twenty two. I mean, we'll run yeah, the broker. Anything that can run a broker. Yeah, anything that'll run a broker. But most of the time, let's say I'm doing a POC, we're gonna we're gonna run it on a Raspberry Could Pi do a with contain Mosquito. a container or something. Say I'm doing something. Um, Let's say let's say I'm doing something on a higher scale. Then I mean, our the listen. We've said this before. I'll say it again. The best broker on the market is EMQX. Um, there are great brokers brokers out there. The the three the big three though, um, you know, between um, EMQX, HiveMQ, and Vern. Um, EMQX is number one. HiveMQ is number two, and Vern's number three. Um, uh, Orlando Orlando said. Um, do you start training with Ignition because Frameworks is harder? It's a good question, Orlando. So why do we start training with Ignition? And the answer is this. Um, Ignition is easier. Yeah. What it is, is it, 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 we, we say this all the time when it comes to in IoT platforms. It, back in the day, you know, I've been using Ignition since t really 2008. I, I've been using it. You know, our teams have been using it uh, in, say, more than 90% of our applications since 2012. 2012 was when Zach and I, it was 12, right? Or 13? 12, 13, yeah. Two, yeah. So Zach and I met back in 2012, 2013 on this. 2013 was the first ICC. That's when uh, Inductive University was launched. Right. But you were on the first, one of the first panels. You were the very first person to complete Inductive University. So Zach Scriven has the, you know, the very first person to ever complete Inductive University. So Zach and I met back in 2012, 2013 on the same project. I was the lead engineer. Zach was one of the the lead developers on that project. And, um, and so we've been knee deep in, or, you know, chest deep in ignition ever since then. Right. And, and in the beginning, ignition was marketed as SCADA. And I used to go to inductive automation. We go to Folsom, go to ICC every year. And I would, I would beg them to stop calling it SCADA because it's not SCADA. It's a rapid application development environment. So it is a platform for solving problems, just like frameworks is. Okay. The difference between Frameworks or Factory Studio, they're the same thing. The difference between Frameworks or Factory Studio and Ignition is that I used, there was a follow-up statement I used to use with Ignition, and that is this. At its base level, Ignition is as easy as it gets in terms of an industrial platform. You can, you can download it for free. You get the full version for two hours at a time. You, you don't ever have to talk to anybody, and you can install it in three minutes, and it's fully cross-platform. Okay, that is... It'll run on any operating system because it's a it's a Java implementation. Okay. And once you get into a designer and you start building screens and stuff, it's as simple as drag and drop. It's I've got a tag over here that's got a value and I want that value on the screen. I just grab the tag and I drop it on the screen and pick a component I want to show it in, right? From a drop down menu. It's as easy as it gets. At its base level, it's drag and drop. So you can get the learning curves really, really short to get started. But at its top end, it is there's nothing you can't build in it. There's nothing you can't do in the platform. Okay, so Ignition is a really good platform to start teaching people how to use in Industry 4.0 or IIoT platforms to solve problems. Frameworks is the .NET implementation, if you will. It's the much faster version. It, it's a competing platform. But it is, I used to call, I basically call it Ignition and .NET. The difference is, is that at the bottom end, Frameworks is not as easy to get started with as Ignition. 
it isn't drag and drop. The And the difference is, is projects have to be compiled. This is the fundamental difference. The projects have to be compiled before they are run in the runtime, whereas in Ignition, they don't, okay, because they're Java, all right? So to answer your question, we start with Ignition because it has the shortest learning curve initially. But Ignition falls short in, in many applications. And so part of the reason that we are a, you know, we're a multi-platform agnostic vendor is because you, the solution you recommend for a client needs to fit the, pro, the client's problem. Mm. And which I want to bring this, this uh, point up here. Um, you guys oh, may I have noticed, you thanks. guys may have noticed a couple of weeks ago, there was a Q&A we did a couple of weeks ago that we took down. We actually didn't take it down. We just put it behind our, our wall. We didn't make it public. And it was because there were a couple of things that I, I said in that, that Q&A that I didn't feel right about. And I was like, well, and we weren't supposed to screen share and <clears throat> yeah, we weren't supposed to do a screen share on it and all this stuff. So we, and, and one of the things that I said in that Q&A was I, I made a, a prediction about what I thought might happen with inductive automation in the next two years that I still, I believe that fully. It's just, I didn't necessarily think that that prediction should be public, right? Number two, there was a, I was answering one of the questions about how do I decide who to partner with, what type of people I work with, and how do I make those decisions? And there was a, I used an example of a, a specific person I don't work with and the company that he's with, I don't work with them at all and why. And then, and then three people I do work with. The guy that I said I don't work with, I didn't mention his name, right. but I still felt like, I was, I, I, not that I was unfair to him. Because no, you're, def I, you're definitely fair. You're definitely yeah, the, fair. The issue was, was I, because I didn't give him an opportunity to come on the podcast and defend himself, I felt like I should, I should not make that public because I don't, you I know. said that, that this person should come on the podcast, but there, and I'm okay with him coming on the podcast. He, he never would. There's no way, no way in a million years he would ever come because there's no way he's going to be able to defend some of his actions, some of the things that he, he would never be able to defend some of the things. Yeah, so that being said, I, I do like the guy and respect the guy. But part of the reason we took that down, that we we put it behind the IOT.university wall was because I, I just I felt like if I'm not going to have him come on here to defend himself, I'm not going to keep that public. But there was a, a, a little discussion in there about. Um, I talk a lot about the importance of if you're going to hire a systems integrator or you're going to hire a consultant, it is very important that you ask that consultant if they're agnostic. Hmm. And, and the question you need to ask them is, do you have commercial relationships with vendors? So that is, do you benefit financially from recommending someone's products? Okay. Now, that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to have commercial relationships. It is a bad thing to trust someone's opinion who has a commercial relationship with a vendor. So our recommendation to customers is if you're working with an integrator or a consultant who does have commercial relationships, say you're a Rockwell integrator, I'm an inductive automation premier integrator, or enter in some other category of commercial relationship. Um, you know, I'm a Microsoft partner, for example. Um, you want to make sure that you are also hiring an agna agnostic consultant who is going to be able to give you the um, unbiased opinion of their recommendations. Okay. And, and, and the, and the reason I bring this up is that the, this person that I, I don't work with, one of the issues that I have is that this person um, intentionally misrepresents commercial relationships that he and his company has with other vendors um, and his bona fides, you know, he, he represents himself as a technical resource, a technical specialist, and he's just a marketing guy, but he's such a great marketing guy. He's able to convince a lot of people he has technical skill and he doesn't, but anyway, go ahead. Um, we had another question come in and someone else bumped it. Um, Charles asked, uh, how do you see the connection between academia and industry in the conduct context of industry 4.0? Do you have a suggestion of use cases that be, could you use by academia to provide relevant contributions? That's an outstanding question. And in fact, Charles Steinmetz, we need to get you with. Um, Advisory board? No, we need to get him with Jeff. Nepper? No. Winner? Uh, oh, from, oh. Guy from Pentec. <laughs> um, so to answer your question, Charles, great question. Okay. So um, we, we consult for. Universities. So um, Jeff there Rankin, are Rankinen. 
Yeah, Jeff Rankinen. We need to get you with a guy named Jeff Rankinen, who's normally actually on here. Uh, he's normally actually he normally actually has his class, his his industrial automation class, watching the live stream each week. Um, Jeff is a is a transformative mind in academia as it relates to Industry 4.0. Part of Jeff's, you know, why Jeff joined our community was he was looking for new ways. He was looking for the new way of educating Industry 4.0 professionals. And you know and, what's crazy about Jeff? Yeah, go ahead. He's also not just in academia, but he's also in industry. Like he's like consulting right. with a with an end user to like do a DTMA and like bring in students from Penn College to like observe it and like he's like actually a practitioner too of industry 4.0. I mean he's active member of the communities and mastermind mentorship and so to answer your question Charles the 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 real answer to your question is more it, it's going to come from a brainstorming session of a that from a group of people in academia and a group of people in private industry like us and part of what we've recommended with Jeff Rankinen is I think Jeff would want to lead this initiative. It would be Jeff Rankinen and Charles and and enter in other members of academia sitting in a room and saying how can how can um, the private sector and academia work in conjunction with one another. The way that Industry 3.0, how that worked in Industry 3.0 was, you know, Rockwell, Beckoff, Siemens, they would formulate commercial relationships with universities to provide hardware and software at no cost so that you were training engineers on how to use their platforms. And the reason why was that would drive the end users to use their platforms because the people coming out of college were being trained on those platforms. But the problem is, is that that's a solution centric approach. And now what's happened is um, now what's happened is the, the people are learning the technology, not the product. So you're, these are technology-centric solutions in Industry 4.0, and that's the conversation that we need to be having as a group, members of academia, those who are doing the actual education, and those who are the boots on the ground doing the actual work. But out, outstanding question. The oh, no. answer is yeah. we need to have a follow-up. Matthew Kendall said, any system integrator that has a Rockwell toolkit has a commercial interest with Rockwell. How would an SI business do without a toolkit, a.k.a. Rockwell integrator? That isn't true. I we have a Rockwell toolkit. We have no commercial interest with Rockwell. We pay full price for the toolkit. We get no Topics discount. Said I. I agreed with what Walker said about Rockwell. Even even I'm working at a Rockwell distributor. Um, so Matt. So Matt Kendall. I. I. We have a Rockwell toolkit, and we do not have a commercial interest with Rockwell. And in, in fact. Rockwell does not like, I mean, obviously Rockwell doesn't like me. But if the, um, if you didn't have the toolkit, you would not be able to service a Rockwell PLC client. Not true. I think, you're, I think what that, you're not true. What you're going to do is partner with a vendor who does. You're going to partner with an integrator who does. And part of what we did strategically initially, so I'm, I'm glad Matt asked this question. I had a previous relationship with a Rockwell distributor in upstate New York when I was, you know, or in, in New York while I was here in, in Texas, when, once I created my company in Texas. And I just leaned, I leaned into that relationship to, to get assistance like, you know, behind the scenes. And then what we did was we formulated a, a commercial relationship uh, or a strategic relationship with a Rockwell integrator located here in Dallas. And whenever we were working, we needed Rockwell access initially before we started buying the toolkit at full price. Um, we, uh, the, there's pricing benefits that come with the toolkit. Yeah. We, we pay for our toolkit outright and we sell no Rockwell products. The, the we, your we toolkit does like, not come with, cause that's what Matthew said. Matthew said there's, there's pricing benefits that come with toolkit. Sure. If you're, if you're, if you're a, a vendor, if you're a Rockwell partner, you are getting the, like the big Rockwell partners are getting their toolkit for free. Okay. The, the partners who do say a hundred thousand in movement, you know, they're getting it for 2,500 bucks. I know that we're paying well over $10,000 a year for our Rockwell toolkit. We're paying full price oh, dude. and, and, and we sell no Rockwell products. There's some really we sell, good. We, we sell absolutely no Rockwell products at thanks, all. Thanks for uh, the question, Matthew. Um, thanks for the clarification, Walker. There's some really good questions that are coming in. So we got to get to them. But David um, said um, in my current research, I've gone, into several small manufacturing firms and tried to do digital transformation maturity assessments and they DTMAs and they just don't have the people or technology to get started. 
And yeah, I'm, I'm reading out the whole comment for the people on listening on the podcast. But um, yeah, then he, um, then he so said, David, um, yeah, David, to answer your question in my current, I've gone into several small main and tried to do digital maturity assessment and they just, uh, they just don't have the people or technology to get started. Well, one of the prerequisites, well, um, I, I need, I need more clarification on, they don't have the technology to get started because I mean, that would mean that they've got dirt floors and they're using relay logic for all their process control. Uh, or they might have concrete floors, but they're using relay logic for all their process control and there's no smart devices, right? They have no network infrastructure whatsoever. There's no core. There's no data. If center. they had I dirt mean, floors, that would actually be ideal. So you could run, you know, yeah, network you run infrastructure, <laughs> dig trenches, and, but, uh, but, uh, say, concrete floors but, required for digital transformation. But let me say this about David, the, the, uh, the not having the people, um, that's really common. Oh, this is what he said. I did a review of yeah, public maturity. Let, exactly. Oh. Let me finish. Let me finish. The they not having the people is very common. Okay. Um, here's and and we shot a video on this. Um, I think it was uh, the the state of industry is changing or whatever it was, and I I did this whole thing where I was talking about why manufacturers do fall behind um, in industry 4.0, and it's because. In order to, let's say you wanted to hire me or you wanted to hire Zach, me or Zach to work for your manufacturer. We're going to make, you would have to pay us more than the executive vice president of that manufacturer to recruit us. Okay. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I was making over $600,000 a year um, in 2014 when I worked for another yeah. integrator. I didn't even own the company and I made $660,000 that year. And you'd probably have to pay me a little bit more too, because yeah, you, Walker you, has F you money, but I don't yet. <laughs> so the, the point is, is that the manufacturer can't afford most of the people. So what do we look for? What do we look for? Here's what you're looking for. You're looking for the people who have the aptitude and their change agents, and you develop that aptitude into skill. And they already have the personality to drive the change. This is one of the fundamental things we do Needle in our digital back. transformation maturity assessment. We're trying to identify the candidates. But one of the things we'll say is if you don't have people, you're going to have to add them. And we're happy to help you find them. Um, this, let me this do This is the, why Luke does the, the uh, you know, the uh, not integrator model, um, incubator model, because they don't have the people. So he, you know, it's an in-house thing. Yeah. Someone and let me see on. this. David, David said, I did a review of published maturity models and they just don't have enough validation through use cases to be useful. Yeah. You're making a mistake there. The published maturity models, especially like if you look at the industry 4.0 maturity model from the EU, that's garbage. It's trash. It's, it's, it, that isn't actually how digital transformation takes place. Mm. It was just somebody, it's, it, it was a maturity model that a committee pulled literally out of their ass. Just like the six foot social assistance, you know, they literally just, they just pulled, they pulled the maturity model out of their ass. Omar that's why, said, oh. that's why here, let me, I'll read the questions. Zach. I got it. Um, I, we have a bunch of, uh, uh, Topic said, I agree Walker about Rockwell. Um, even though I'm working at a Rockwell distributor, Omar said, how can I market for an industry 4.0 idea? The answer is it depends on what the idea is. My question is, or my, my question to you would be, Omar, um, or my recommendation is, in all marketing, this is how marketing has changed, okay? This is how business development has changed in our industry as a function of Industry 4.0. You sell value. Values. Okay, you sell value. Oh, well, you, you, you work with people based on common values, but you sell value. The, old, the idea that you are going to sell features and benefits of a thing Okay. And then you're going to overcome objections and always be closing and ask for the sale. And if you're not in business development, you don't know any of these terms, but these are common sales tactics. That shit went out the window. You sell. If there's real value, then the customer would be stupid to say no. This when, when you sell value and the customer does the close for you. So when, when the customer is the one who says, what are the next this. steps? I want yeah. this. What are the next steps? You don't go, what do you, you know, Hey, what, so what do you think? Are, are you interested? Uh, you know, you ready to move on to the next steps in our industry, the customer is the one who closes. Okay. So to answer, but answer Omar's question here, um, how do you market an industry 4.0 idea? What you do is you quantify the value of your idea and then you sell that value through digital media. You demonstrate that value through digital media. 
It's that simple. Um, uh, Matt Kendall, there's pricing benefits. Okay, Scott Phillips, I'm seeing more industry 4.0 a box offerings, AWS, Ignition, Opto, and MQTT, or similar tech stacks. Do you think these are a good starting point for small medium manufacturers to get started? Um, the answer is we, it's funny. You said this. We're just Zach talking I, about this. We literally just talked about this last night. Okay. Literally just last night. So the, here, here's the answer. The answer is yes, they are a good start initially. So, and, and when I say initially, I mean for the first 12 months, but you have, you're going to go into those, you're going to go into those industry 4.0 in a box um, engagements and make major modifications after 12 months. And he, so be, you should be familiar with this. There's a concept called land and expand in, in digital technology. And the idea is to get your solution into a customer either for free or as little as humanly possible. Or even paid. I'll pay yeah. you to yeah. try the software. Or yeah, I'll pay you to let me install my stuff there. You get them hooked and then you expand. Okay. Industry 4.0 in a box is a combination of here is a here's a suite of products that are going to give you a technology driven solution and land and expand all in one. So there was one we were reviewing last night. Um, I don't know if it's fair to even bring it up, but actually, let's go ahead and do it. Um, 4IR. So the company 4IR is offering. Um, yeah, go ahead and make sure you link it in the in the chat, please. Yeah, um, yeah. So they have the. Hosted, uh, yeah. So, for so four IR is offering essentially uh, a hosted ignition solution. So that is, and they there's no manage, commercial relations, not sponsored. Yeah, we don't have any relationship with them in any way, shape, or form. I've had one call with the owner of four IR or whatever, um, and that was on the SAP Business Connector. He, they were part of the team that helped develop the SAP Business Connector with Cybersoft. They have a like a SaaS model, um ignition server thing you know you pay $1,900 a month for your server it includes your ignition license all the upgrades they maintain it all that stuff and Zach was asking me he's like hey this looks really interesting you know do you think you know this is valuable and I said well yeah it's valuable for the first year but after the first year as you get through many more iterations it's going to be you're going to want to go regional and their their architecture may not support the regional architecture for your global enterprise Correct. And, 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 and by the way, you're basically paying them a thousand dollars. I mean, they're making a thousand dollars a month on it. It's they're like digital, oh. digital ocean versus AWS or something. Yeah. Oh, Richard Shaw. I call that rectally derived derived. Yes. Thank you. Uh, Richard. Uh, let, let's say what David said, they don't have any communication between layers or anyone that knows all the layers. I wanted to do a shop floor, but I ended up doing a business level energy management, digital twin. Here's my point, David, you, that's good. You, you, you provided value where you can provide value. And that mm -hmm. needs to be the first step. If you're trying to quote unquote, sell digital transformation, um, your customer needs to understand that the real value is going to be unlocked once they connect the plant level equipment to the, um, enterprise level um, digital, digital twin that you did. Let's do uh, Sanjiv Kumar's question. You usually talk about factory floor integration with the cloud using MQTT spark plug. Why not OPC UAUM uh, AMQP? Right. Are we being are we being trolled? Here? Yeah, we're definitely being trolled here. Okay, <laughs> I mean, I, I've definitely done this one a million times. Um, I'm just kidding. It, yeah, you know, we welcome so, all the questions. He, here's why. Here's why. Um, the the OPC UA AMQP integrate um, um, stack is not. Um, part 14 fully compliant with OPC UA that is pub sub. Um, so, and really, if you're going to say, Hey, let's do OPC UA AMQP, what you're saying is, Why don't we do uh, an OPC UA server with an Azure stack? That's what you're actually saying. You'll um, do OPC UA at the plant level. <clears throat> of course, right? you'll do OPC UA at the process level, right? But to answer your question, that's a, that's a longer discussion. But, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, that is not truly edge driven. It's not truly report by exception. And it is definitely not lightweight um, to, to answer your question. But there are some use cases on Jiv where that would be an appropriate um, architecture, say, up to the plant level. So OPC UA, AMQP, say, to the data center at the plant. But going out of the plant, that's not going to make a lot of sense. All right, let me get to my MES conversation. Yeah, Sorry, man, that was, that was 50 minutes of... 
Um, no, let, I got to I got to switch okay. over here. So, okay, okay. all right. So <clears> what <throat> I think what we'll do, Zach, because I only got ten minutes to do this. Um, do the industry updates for sure. No, we'll do industry updates next week. Let me okay, okay. let me because I said that we were going to do this MES, and I want to make sure. Oh yeah, we got to answer the three questions because I sent an email out. You guys should be yeah. getting emails with the weekly topics of the live Q and A. Um, so if you're not getting that, make sure to look at like if it's going into the wrong spam folder, make sure to mark it as important because these three questions, you should have received an email with what the topic of today's session is. Um, all right. So a couple of questions that came in, you know, I, I prefaced at the very beginning of the stream. We'll probably go maybe five minutes over today, guys, because I need 15 minutes to do this. So the, you know, I, I make the comment that any idiot can build a SCADA system, but building MES is much more difficult. And I'm actually going to talk about why today. So I got a bunch of questions where somebody was saying, you know, what is the fundamental difference between SCADA and MES, both in functional and integration terms, right? So um, from a functional perspective, and, and, and the reason I'm answering these questions is a, a huge piece of our mentorship program this year and our, and our mastermind program this year, especially over the next six months, give or take, is going to be manufacturing execution systems. Okay. And there's a, I'll have Zach link the video in the comments down below where I talk about, you know, what is MES and, you know, MES is not a solution. It is, it is a, your manufacturing execution system is going to be uh, defined by you. You are going to pick and choose, uh, uh, a series of capabilities from a list of like 100 possible capabilities in an MES system. Okay. And so MES implementations oftentimes are very, while there's, there's the core four capabilities in MES, right? There's, you know, downtime tracking, uh, downtime and state tracking, uh, OEE calculation, um, work order management and scheduling. Those are your core four, right? Um, most MES systems, you're going to do those four things but you're going to pick a whole host of other capabilities to sort of pack into your MES suite. Track that's why, trace. Yeah, that's why buying MES recipe management, quality management, you know, SPC, there's a whole host of, you know, uh, digital work instructions, you know, there's a whole host of of other capabilities you may want to package into your MES system. Would the predictive maintenance be under MES? Absolutely. It, it depending upon whether you treat CMMS as a manufacturing function or a business function. Right. So, yeah. Right. So and, and so I'm going to. So what is the fundamental difference between SCADA, which is supervisory control and data acquisition and manufacturing execution systems in a functional and integrative terms in functional terms? Manufacturing execution systems it is it is the gateway between the business and the plant floor. That's what MES is. SCADA is not that SCADA is just monitoring and controlling your processes. Okay. There's no business function in SCADA. Okay. It is strictly process functions. Manufacturing execution is the layer directly above SCADA. And it is the gateway between the business, the ERP and the plant floor. It is the place where a sales order gets converted into a manufacturing order. Manufacturing orders are work orders. Okay. And a work order is what am I making? Where am I making it? How fast should I make it? What raw material should I use to make it? And how well did I make it? That's manu that that is that is your manufacturing work order. Okay. So from a functional perspective, MES is the is a hybrid between process and business, and SCADA is just process. Okay. Building SCADA systems is easy. It's a great entry point into into using digital tools to run plant floors. But when you take the step from SCADA for, on an integration perspective, and you go from supervisor control and data acquisition up into the MES layer, it's a big leap. It's a really big leap. Okay. And so how does it change from an integration perspective? I'm going to use this example. Okay. I, I had a client, we had a client a couple of years ago. We still have them, but, um, they had three primary processes in this facility we worked in. They had, they had a batch process where they basically made the, um, the ceramic cylinders that go into uh, catalytic converters. They, had, they made, they made um, fuel injectors and they made wiring harnesses. Okay. Um, 
if I let's say I wanted to build a SCADA system for that customer and they hire me, the supervisor control and data acquisition that I do for all three of those processes could be basically identical. The only thing that's really going to change is the isometric visualiz the isometric visualization or the overhead view of the facility. So the isometric would be like the side view of the process where we, you know, I basically take the PNID drawing and I basically recreate it digitally. If I'm building a SCADA system and I'm going to do alarm management, tag management, and visualization, and I'm going to do alarm logs and all that kind of stuff, it's basically going to be exactly the same for all three processes. But if I go to manufacturing execution layer, and we did with this client, you, we ran into an immediate problem, okay? And, and, he, and we're going to talk about this later in when we're training on MES and some of the pitfalls to look out for when you're doing MES. And that is this. Um, the batch process that we talked about where they basically made, they, they had a batch where they pressed this big, huge, long log, and then they cut, they, they dried it, and then they cut it to length, and then they palletized it. There were four cells in that process. So the production line was all four cells together. The, that process took about two hours to run. So you would have multiple work orders running on that production line at the exact same time. Okay, so that is... I could have a log at the end of the process that was for the previous work order. And I could have a new log at the beginning of the process that's for a brand new work order. Okay. Now, those of you who build manufacturing execution systems out there, like the Mario Ishigawa's out there, who's a, he's an MES guy. There are other MES guys here. Those of you who do MES know that that is actually really hard to pull off when, when to, ha to have two work orders running on the same production line at the exact same time and to be able to attribute the counts, the states, and the waste to the correct work order. That is really, really hard to do. On the other two production lines that they did where they made the fuel injectors and where they made the wiring harnesses, the, you never had more than one work order running on a line at any given time. Now, How is that, how is that even possible? Well, because the process was so slow, you know, it's like Are if it takes making the same product for both work orders. Well, no, because you could drop a different batch, a different batch mix, right? You could mix a different, a different recipe, you know, while, while the log is going through the downstream process, you could be mi mixing a different recipe for the next product. Oh. And that's a different work order, different skew. So you're setting the work order per cell, not, not per the whole line. So the, what was the solution there? And I, I'm not going to tell you what the, what the solution is that we did. I'm in mentorship and mastermind. We're going to do that because it's a, it's probably gonna take an hour to explain it, but that's, that's crazy. Actually. That's crazy. Yeah. Basically we'll go through and we'll show you, you know, how we hurt jump that hurdle. But here's my point. My point is, is that the person who built the SCADA system for those three production lines. Okay might be an incredibly gifted SCADA developer, okay? May be really, really good at acquiring data, um, parameterizing that data, applying alarms to that data, building visualizations, you know, building, using ISA 101 to build their visualization, the ISA 101 layers for your visualizations and your UI. They might be excellent at that. And you take that person and now you say, hey, you're engineer so-and-so, you're on this new, we're doing an MES project for this customer. And the second he gets to that first production line, or maybe he does the, the fuel injector and the wiring harness first, where there's only one work order on the line at any given time, you know, and, and you train him how to do it and he's, he's fine. He'll be able to do it. Right. And then he gets to this hurdle. And by the way, I have seen many, many engineers crash and burn in that use case, crash and burn. Now, what about? Let me finish that. Let me finish. Yeah. So MES is a completely different ball of wax. It's a totally different ball of wax. The way that you attack problems is a function of the capability that you're developing at any given time, whether I'm developing digital work instructions, whether I'm developing recipe management. I mean, hell, we had a client one time who, you know, recipes, you know, they had recipe and formulation, right? And the recipe is the definition of all the things that needs to go into making something and all the set points on the machine for how to make it. Well, the way that this customer did it, the way you normally do it is process engineer defines a recipe. You download the recipe at the machine. The operator does all the set points. The operator mixes all the stuff together and then they run it. And then if something goes wrong, they go back to the process engineer and the process engineer makes an adjustment to the recipe. 
and then and then approves that recipe and releases it. And now that's the new version. We had a customer who the operator is the one who did that. The operator's job was to make the adjustments, create the formulation and whatever the last formulation was I did. So this is the recipe definition. This is the actual that I did. This actual now becomes the new the latest recipe. Just that one little change throws a complete monkey wrench into the complete implementation. So the point is, is that MES is incredibly complex to integrate. And anybody who says, oh, I can do MES because I do SCADA is full of shit. You don't, that's, there's no guarantee you can do that. And unless you've been doing manufacturing execution systems for some time, what I just said to you is going to mean absolutely nothing. But the, when you first go to do, when you first go do, you go do your first enterprise class MES system, you're going to come back and send me a private message and go, oh my God, you were so right. So I want to answer two more questions that came out of this much short. So the, one of the other questions was, how is PLC programming different when you're developing with MES in mind? The answer is, when you develop a PLC program, the only thing you're focused on is functional specification functional specification and um, control theory. Uh, real quick, Jeff Rankin joined the call. Hey, Jeff Rankin, and hello from Penn College. Hey, Jeff, there's a guy in the chat here that you're going to want to get with. His name is Charles uh, Charles Steinmetz. He asked a question about Industry 4.0 and academia. I gave an answer and referenced you guys. Um, I think maybe the three of us should have a call. Um, but anyway, just go ahead and I would make a point to go back and rewatch. Uh, I think that his question was about halfway through the stream, but uh, there was a question about industry Ford auto and academia. And I, I actually brought you up. Um, so how is PLC programming different when developing with MES in mind? Well, when you're developing only for process control, only the plant floor stuff. So that's SCADA and down, you're only concerned with function and, and uh, control theory. That's it. But when you're developing for MES, there are, there are additive, there are other things you need to take into consideration. Like for example, a PLC programmer who, who writes programs for machines that are going to be part of a did are going to integrate into an enterprise MES system, they have to write line registers. They have to write line state registers where they have to take all the possible conditions. A second part of the control theory is what is the state of our control if we're not in control. So if we're out of control, that is when we're not operating the way we're supposed to be, we have to define what our state is and how do we take all the possible conditions in my program and build a state register that will inform an external application what is our current state and why so that we can track that. So that's how it's different for a PLC programmer. There are a whole other, a whole bunch of other implications, but in a nutshell, that's how a PLC programmer who builds machines that are going to integrate into MES systems is different than a, a PLC programmer who's only building for process control. Go ahead, Zach. Spare parts. A PLC programmer that's developing with MES in mind is going to have a spare parts array inside of the PLC so the CMMS system can know exactly the list of spare parts that that machine Here, even needs. And, and they're going to be able to consume that spare parts list from an infrastructure. Here's the other thing. When it comes to CMMS, there are definitions like asset IDs. So what is the asset ID of this asset? You generally put the asset ID in the machine asset itself. Asset ID on the machine, yeah. When was the machine manufactured? Who was the technician who installed it? When was it installed it? When did when did uh, when was it put into production? Are you calculating it, OEE on the PLC as well? We're normally calculating OEE at the MES layer and sending it to the PLC. So generally there's an OEE register that you are writing to. So the PLC sees that overall equipment effectiveness. But my point is, is so that your PLC, PLC, doesn't, PLC doesn't know the schedule because you is need the schedule. Okay. Is different. And then how is SCADA development different when developing with MES in mind? And the answer is this, a SCADA developer is going to consume those attributes that are created in the PLC and in the MES layer for SCADA purposes. That's the difference. So one of the big things is, and they're going to publish to it, a SCADA system is going to take the alarms that are defined in SCADA <coughs> and they're going to write the state of those alarms into a, into a PLC or into an MES system. All right. So I went over. Would you consider recipe management a SCADA functionality or an MES functionality? Definitely an MES function. Definitely an MES function. It, it uses SCADA attributes, but it's an MES function. Um, right, one last right. question. 
Um, talking today about SCADA and PLC related to MES, I wonder how does IIoT relate to MES in general and in terms of operations, business, and data layers? Great question, Tomas. Um, MES or uh, business applications, the industrial internet of things makes it possible for business applications and data applications to consume MES context. So from the plant floor, sort of everything, you know, remember if the MES layer, whether that's an MES system or whether it's just a capability inside of some other thing, the MES layer is really the convergence of the plant floor in the business. That's really what it is. This is why in digital transformation, one of your very first use cases is almost always some MES capability. How how does IAOT um, how does IAOT um, relate to MES in general and in terms of operations? IAOT is the ecosystem through which MES shares and consumes data yeah, to other nodes. Note. In the ecosystem. MES is a node in the ecosystem. Correct. All right. Awesome. Dude, this is a really good live Q and I can't wait to publish this on the 4.0 Solutions podcast. Awesome. Hopefully. Everybody enjoyed it. Um, all right. So real quick, there was a couple of things we didn't get to because we had so many great questions from the community. I want to make sure I got to those. Um, next week, we'll do, I'll make sure we include the five example use cases for the unified namespace. Um, and we'll do, we'll definitely do industry updates. Um, with I wanted, that, this, I wanted, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about next week. Yeah, this was a great, was a great podcast. Um, uh, thank you everybody from join for joining a uh, quick reminder. Tomorrow, for those of you who are in Mastermind, tomorrow is the uh, step seven. We're doing cloud part two. So those of you guys are in the accelerator where you're getting caught up on Mastermind. Uh, tomorrow is step seven, which is part two of cloud. And Zach will be leading Dude, that session. Thanks. Thanks for reminding me, man. I would have forgot. You're welcome, buddy. All right. Thank All you, right. everybody. We will see you next week. Bye.